Take your Bibles out and turn with me. Acts 15. Acts 15. A business conference for which we can all be grateful. Do most of us like business conferences? No. But here is one for the ages. And how fitting that we talk about it today. Because do you know what Friday was? Anybody know what Friday was? And don't say Halloween. That's not the answer I'm looking for. Very good. Reformation Day. Reformation Day. That's what was celebrated uh, every year on October 31st. And I'll have more to say about that in the introduction to the message. Stand for the reading of God's Word, please. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. 
Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Father, we thank you for the simple message of the gospel. Lord, we know that continuing down to the present day, it is perhaps the most misunderstood message on the face of the earth. Because people still think they can do something to add to their salvation or even to accomplish their own salvation. God, we thank you for this debate here in Acts 15 that further clarifies the New Testament message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ and Christ alone. May we clearly understand this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Almost 500 years ago, this past Friday, October 31st, one of the most significant events in modern church history took place. It's an event that continues to shape the church today all of these hundreds of years later. You see, on October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther walked up to the door of the church at Wittenberg, the very doors that are on the PowerPoint slide this morning. And he walked up to those doors and he nailed his 95 theses calling for a reformation and change in the church. Now the 95 theses are generally regarded as being the catalyst that began the Protestant Reformation. One of the matters that upset Luther the most and sort of brought all this to a head was the sale of indulgences by Johann Tetzel, a Dominican friar. You see, Tetzel had been sent to Germany by the Catholic Church to sell indulgences that would fund the building of St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. 
Roman Catholic theology stated that a man could not be justified by faith alone. They said that going along with faith, he also had to have works, and particularly works of charity. They held that Christ in his sinless life had built up an account, a treasury of merits. And by the purchase of indulgences, you could draw from that account of merits and you could shorten your time or the time of your loved ones in purgatory. Now folks, purgatory is found nowhere in the scripture. It's not taught in the Bible. But it was present in Catholic theology, the theology of the day, as a place where one goes between death and eternity to complete his or her suffering for sins committed in this life. That the death of Christ on the cross is not enough. That in purgatory, you've got to add to it. You've got to go through a time of suffering to complete Christ's suffering on the cross. And so the promise was, through the purchase of indulgences, one's time of punishment for earthly sins could be shortened. And then you could make it to heaven quicker after your death. Now, it was in thesis number 28 in particular that Luther challenged uh, the sale of indulgences. They had become so famous that there was even a little jingle. And some of you remember what that jingle was, that when the coin and the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Now, in an age of rampant illiteracy, and you add to that the limitations of, of the Bibles and the language of the common man, and, and the stranglehold and the manip manipulation that the church held over the general uh, population, indulgences became quite useful to the church as a means of raising money for its various projects. In 1520, Pope Leo X demanded that Luther retract the 95 Theses, and of course he refused. And because of his refusal, Luther was excommunicated from the church, but the seeds of Reformation had already been sown. Luther, as well as many others, continued their work to reform the church. Indulgences were only one of many grievances they had. But in place of man-centered traditions, unscriptural practices, the, Ro uh, the reformers cried out for what has become known as the five solas of the Reform Reformation. Number one, sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Secondly, sola uh, gratia, by grace alone, solo fide, by faith alone, solo Christo, by Christ alone, and soli Deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Now, of course, from the Protestant Reformation, you have all the Protestant denominations of today. 
The magisterial reformers like Luther and Calvin wanted to stay within the church and reform the church from the inside. The radical reformers broke away from the church altogether. You had radical reformers, groups like the Anabaptists from which we trace our roots. Now folks, why do I give you this little tiny fraction of a history lesson uh, on the background of the Reformation? It's because it was a time in the history of the church where monumental decisions were made that continue to impact us even today. And when we turn to a passage like Acts chapter 15, that is exactly what we see here. We read about a similar time of important decisions in the life of the church. Now sometimes men and women today act as though church history has very little to do with us in in the current age. And yet, even today, we are who we are because of decisions that were made at times like this that we read about. What's at stake in this chapter is of monumental importance. How is somebody justified before God? How is somebody reconciled to God and saved? How can you and I have peace of knowing that our sins are forgiven... And our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, are those decisions important to you and me? Absolutely. In fact, I can't think of of any questions greater in importance than that. And folks, it's those kind of questions that were being debated right here. And that's why I would submit to you that over top of Acts chapter 15 in your copy of the New Testament, you should write this is one of the most important chapters in all of the New Testament. I don't care who you are, whatever, what other burdens you may have come in here with today. If we get this question right here wrong, little else matters. Now what we see today is that the apostles and the early church community refused to allow legalistic principles to water down or even deny the gospel. First thing I want you to see with me this morning is the dissension. The dissension. Pick up reading with me again in verse 1. In verse 1, Luke writes, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Here everything has been clicking along marvelously in the church at Antioch. We've talked in the past couple of chapters about the church at Antioch. John MacArthur writes that they were the first beachhead of Christianity into the pagan world. It was the church at Antioch where the first missionary team went out to reach a pagan generation. What a dynamic church this has been. And in the close of chapter 14 it says, And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And then chapter 15 opens up and we read here that there has been an invasion into the church. Some men from Judea have come down. 
And look at what their message is. Unless you are circumcised and keep all of the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now folks, what they're teaching right there, they're pushing aside verses like John 3.16. They've just pushed John 3.16 and other verses like it completely out of the picture. And what they're saying here is, here is something else that you've got to do in order to be saved. Now these are apparently the Judaizers that Paul ran into when he wrote the Galatian letter. The Judaizers said, it is circumcision and the keeping of the law plus Christ. It's a Jesus plus something else kind of salvation. That's what they were preaching. Now I say that it's the Judaizers and not Jews who outright rejected Jesus because of what we read here in verse 2. Had these men been Jews who outright rejected all messages about Jesus Christ, I think Paul would have just had it out with them right there on the spot as he did with other Jews in other places. I think the whole church would have just discounted them and dealt with them as opponents of the gospel and then just kept right on doing what they were doing. But we're going to see these men upset the church even more. These men here in verse 1 are perhaps even more dangerous to the church than enemies of the gospel. They're unbelievers who make it sound like on the one hand they're open to Jesus, but they also wanted to preach a Jesus plus gospel, which is really no gospel at all and could end up causing more confusion and damage than somebody who's an outright enemy of the gospel. Again, it's the same group Paul dealt with in Galatians. Turn with me to Galatians 1, if you would, please. In Galatians 1, I want you to pick up reading with me in verse 6. In verse 6, Paul writes, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now listen to what he says about this different gospel. He says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And what's Paul's conclusion to all this? But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema, or let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed that's exactly what they're facing here in Acts 15 as well now the fact that the church wanted Paul and Barnabas and others to go to Jerusalem and make sure about what they were preaching tells me that the Judaizers did in fact confuse the church a little bit And so the church sends a team up to Jerusalem to confer with the apostles and the elders to make sure that they've not been leaving off anything when they've been preaching. They want to make sure they've not been forgetting something. Now again, that shows me what a dangerous situation this could have potentially have been. 
Now, as the group goes to Jerusalem, they were doing something great. It says here that on their way up there, they were strengthening and encouraging the believers in Phoenicia and Samaria. In other words... They were just keeping on, keeping on. They were doing what they had always been doing. And now verse 5 is very interesting. In verse 5 it says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now I take it at face value what Luke writes here about this group. They were believers. They were believers who had been of the party of the Pharisees. Remember back in Acts chapter 6, in that passage dealing with the deacons, when when they got all that situation worked out, we're told that the word of the Lord continued to spread, and even many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Maybe that's some of these here that were of the party of the Pharisees. Luke writes here, they were believers. They were just misinformed. They were weak believers. And so the the message of the Judaizers has really affected these weak believers. They're ready to agree with the Judaizers. Again, the Judaizers were preaching a Jesus plus something else type gospel. And here these men in in verse 5 here are are now starting to side with the Judaizers. Folks, all I can think of at this point is how serious the situation is going on here. Do you realize that had their opinion carried the day, the gospel wouldn't be the gospel at all? All that we would be preaching would be just a warmed over Judaism, that's all. This is a potentially very dangerous situation we're reading about here. This was a monumental moment in Christian history. Now, for the sake of clarity on something, I want to take a little brief detour, okay? I want to take a little detour on something. I want to say that even from a proper understanding of the Old Testament, the Judaizers totally missed the message of the Bible. And they missed the message of the Bible when it came to the law and when it came to circumcision. You see, the Bible points out that salvation has always been a matter of faith. How many times have you been talking to somebody and maybe they say, Preacher, you know, uh, saints in the Old Testament were saved by, by the law. By the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law and by circumcision, but today we're saved by faith. Two different plans of salvation. Have you ever heard that? I have. And it's wrong. People have always been justified by faith. They've always been saved by faith. Circumcision was an outer sign to them of their inner faith. It was their response to God's grace. The law was never given to save. Paul points out in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians also, that the law was given to simply point out our sin and our inability to save ourselves. The law was given so that it would drive us to our knees and that on our knees we would cry out for God's mercy. 
the law cannot save. Turn with me. I want you to see more of it. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 4. Because in Romans chapter 4, Paul uses the illustration of Abraham to drive this point home. Now folks, when did Abraham live? Did Abraham live after the Mosaic Law or before the Mosaic Law? Before. When was circumcision given? After the law or before? Before. And and when did God uh, command Abraham to observe circumcision? Did, did Did he give that to Abraham before Abraham was justified or after? After. And so those who want to say that you're saved by the law or saved by circumcision, then then you've got a real problem with Abraham. Because Abraham, the timeline on Abraham is going to mess up your timeline on all this. Read with me beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. You see what Paul's saying? To the law group. To the group who would say you got to keep the law and be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul said, whoa, then what do you do with Abraham? Abraham is your hero. Abraham is the one Jews and Christians both look back to. Abraham lived before the law. 
And what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Remember how God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to lift up your eyes and look and see all the stars in the heavens above and all the grains of sand on the seashore. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as all of these because you and your wife are going to have a child. He's, he's going to be your own child, not the child of the slave woman in your home, but your child. And through him, I I'm going to choose a people and eventually raise up the Messiah. And the Bible says Abraham believed God. And God credited unto him his righteousness. In other words, right then and there, boom, Abraham was saved by faith. And then circumcision was only given as a sign of the covenant that he had with God, never as a means of salvation. And so my point being, these Judaizers and these people in verse 5 who were beginning to believe the Judaizers, they've even messed up their Old Testament because they're thinking people back then were saved by works of the law. And they weren't. It's always always been a matter of faith. The Old Testament saints looked forward to God's redeeming sacrifice. Their faith was proleptic. Looking forward to Christ's sacrifice. And His sacrifice counted for them. They were looking forward. It was proleptic. They looked forward to that sacrifice where you and I today, we look Back to it. But all those sacrifices that they did were a shadow of the one to come. That's how they were saved. By faith in what God was going to do. In a perfect redeeming sacrifice to set them free from their guilt and their sin. And it's for both Jews and Gentiles. Romans 3, again, Paul makes it so clear, beginning there in verse 20. In verse 20, Paul writes, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ uh, for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Then you come down to verse 28 and Paul writes, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Scripture couldn't be any more clear on this matter. And so this group here causing the dissension is wrong in their theology. Wrong not only in their new covenant theology, but also they're mistaken even in their old covenant theology. Now the second thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the discussion. The discussion that ensues in verse 6. You'll see first of all there that uh, Peter's testimony, uh, Peter testifies as to how God poured out his spirit on the Gentiles. 
Now folks, what is the sign that God bestows on somebody as evidence that they belong to Him? What's the sign that God gives? It's His Spirit. His Spirit. That's exactly what Paul teaches in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, Paul says the Holy Spirit is the one who is God's seal of ownership on all of God's children, on all of those who belong to Him. At the moment somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1 says at that moment, not some years later, but at that moment they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's seal of ownership saying, this one is mine. Now listen to Peter's logic here. As Peter is defending the Gentiles' faith, he gets up and gives testimony about when he preached to the Gentiles and they believed in Christ and were saved. What did God do? God sent His Spirit on them exactly as He did on the Jews, on the Jewish believers on the day of Pentecost. And so if God has sealed the Gentile believers with His Spirit, His seal of ownership, what is that a testimony of? That is a testimony to the fact that God has accepted them. God has accepted them on the basis of their faith in Jesus Christ and on nothing else. Not on the basis of them being circumcised or keeping the law or becoming Jews first, but on the basis of their faith in Jesus. God sending the Spirit on them is God's testimony that they are now His. And then James stands up, beginning in verse 13, and he adds to what Peter has said. James' point is that in prophecy, God told about the Gentiles being reached. And there's no mention of them having to become Jewish proselytes first. This idea that before one can come into the door of the church, you got to build a front porch on the door of the church, and that's Jewish faith. And you got you to go through that door first and become a good practicing Jew before you can go through the door of the church. That wasn't even taught in the Old Testament. And James is using Amos to point that out. That even Amos testified that God had one plan of salvation for the Jew and the Gentile and it is by faith in Jesus. Now folks, the beautiful thing to see here is what both of these leaders did in discussing this point. What did they fall back on? They fell back on the Word of God. How many times when we're discussing something, when we're maybe debating on, on something, something of maybe a, a major importance, and, and somebody gets up and says, well, I think about it this way, or I, my opinion is I feel it ought to be this way or that way. And everybody gets into feelings and emotions and opinions. But what did Peter and John do? 
Peter and John fell back on the witness of Scripture. Folks, the Bible is to be our guide for both faith and practice because the Bible is the inspired Word of God. That's the Reformation principle of sola scriptura I told you about a moment ago. God's people need to search the Scripture. And if there is Scripture that addresses what is being debated, then the debate ought to be settled right there once and for all. Now, folks, I realize that for 7 billion people plus on the planet today, every single little situation all 7 billion people get involved in, every decision everybody on planet Earth woke up this morning and was, was faced with, there's not a chapter and verse on every single thing you get into. But the Scripture does have principle. If, if there's not a command in the Scripture that ad addresses something, there are principles that show you what you ought to do in that situation. The Bible is to be our guide. And that's what they used in this discussion here. Now thirdly, I want you to see the decision. Look at the decision that begins in verse 19. Picking up in verse 19, it, it says, therefore, James is speaking here. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has been held in every... has been... Has, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now there are two very important issues to see here. Two things taking place. Number one, there's a ruling, there's a decision about the way of salvation. Number two, there's a ruling about what's going to constitute Christian fellowship. Two things here. Okay? Verse 19 is concerning the way of salvation. And notice what they did in verse 19. That we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. They put no further burden on the Gentiles. They added nothing to salvation by grace through faith. This is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Their decision concerning salvation was what? The Gentiles have come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's all that's required of them to be saved. We're not going to issue a ruling that they've got to become Jewish and keep all the Jewish commandments and that they've got to observe the rite of circumcision. We're not, not going to put that burden on. They've come by Christ. Good enough. Now, concerning the Christian life, however, you notice beginning in verse 20, there are some things they, they say. They say, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and, and from what's been strangled and for blood, for 
Circle that four. It's important. Four from ancient generations Moses has had in every city. Those who proclaim him for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What they're saying here is in the Christian life of these Gentiles. These Gentiles are living among Jews. And they're living in places where Moses is read every single Sabbath. And so if these Gentiles go taking part in these practices mentioned here in verse 20, they're going to mess up their Christian testimony with the Jews. You see, the pagans, the pagans before coming to Christ, would engage in eating meat sacrificed to idols. Sometimes eating or even drinking the blood. They would engage in sexual immorality. That, of course, wouldn't be fitting for any believer. But they give them this list here of things that now that they've come to faith in Christ, they need to stay away from to protect their testimony. It's exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. Remember the discussion in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14? What should a Christian do about meat sacrifice to an idol? Paul says that idol is nothing. It's a dumb dead idol. These idols of wood and stone, there's nothing to that idol. And this meat that's been sacrificed to a pagan idol and then on sale down at the meat market, as a Christian, I can go down there and, hey, I can get a great price on my groceries for this week. Because that meat sacrificed to a pagan god is going to be on sale. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, As a Christian who doesn't acknowledge that pagan idol, I know that there's only one God. Eating that meat is not going to mess me up in any way. But then Paul says, but, but, I will. (laughs) They can come up here and help me. That meat's nothing but... (laughs) If it causes my weaker brother to stumble, I will forego my liberty for the sake of my brother. I don't want to do anything that would cause my brother to stumble. Folks, Romans 14, listen to what Paul said there. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So in verse 19, they're talking about salvation. No other burden we're going to place on you. Beginning in verse 20, they're saying now as far as your testimony, your testimony, especially among the Jews, because Moses continues to be read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Here's how we want you to live to protect your Christian testimony. And then, folks, you got to love what they do next. 
They take Paul and Barnabas and then they elect two brothers to go along with Paul and Barnabas. They write this very gracious letter. They carry it to the Gentiles there at Antioch. They read the apostles' decisions to the Gentiles and everybody rejoices. They not only made the right decision, but they handled the human relations part of it correctly. How many times do sometimes people make the right decision, but boy, they really mess up in how they communicate things. Pastor this week was telling me about a staff member that he's got. He's so burdened, he doesn't know what he's going to do. He said, I'm, I'm afraid we're about to have to release him. He said, smart as, he, smart as a whip, he makes all the right judgments and decisions. But the guy has zero people skills. And it's like he has the spiritual gift of sandpaper with everybody in our congregation. And we can't do anything with him. And when he does walk in the room and people want to greet him, he never even, he's expressionless, never smiles at anybody, even if they smile at him and welcome him. Just totally shut off from everybody and he goes and does his thing. No people skills whatsoever. He's so burdened about what they're going to do with him. They've tried to help him. What they did here, they not only made the right decisions, but they also carried out this matter in the right spirit. And look at what happened. Everybody rejoice. Some lessons that I want to give you. Uh, just two of them here in closing. Lesson number one. Don't ever be confused about the way of salvation. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I've talked to people before. I've said, when were you saved? Oh, I walked the aisle when I was seven. When were you saved? I, I, oh, I, the preacher stood me up in front of the congregation. When were you saved? Oh, I was saved at re, last night of revival. I, I went down, I was baptized. Well, when did you, have an, did, did you have an encounter with Christ? Well, preacher presented me to the church. Folks, Walking an aisle, being baptized, joining a church, we do those things because we have been born again. We, we come forward making our faith in Christ public. Walking an aisle, even entering into those waters, that doesn't save you. It's faith in Christ and Christ alone that saves you. Don't ever be confused about 